Welcome to the Sermon Podcast of Christ Bible Church in the Twin Cities. I'm Pastor Levi Secord. It is the goal of Christ Bible Church to glorify God by bringing all of Christ into all of life. For that reason, I want you to know that we now offer a second podcast called The Worldview Minute. In it, I seek to demonstrate the universal importance of the Christian worldview by building the theological foundations of our faith and then applying them to all of life. The Worldview Minute aims to produce short, accessible episodes that equip the believer to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord and Lord over all of life. This podcast is available on Apple, Spotify, YouTube, and Google. Just search for The Worldview Minute and you can subscribe there. Now let us turn our minds and our hearts to the preaching of God's Word. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken to us in your Word. We pray that as your Word is declared this morning, your Spirit, He would be active He would be present among us, transforming our hearts and our minds and our lives. We ask all of this in confidence, knowing that that is your good desire for your people. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So we had a quick jaunt uh, through the book of Micah before uh, I took off a couple weeks. And now we're in the book of 1 Peter. And this is, believe it or not, going to bring us all the way into sunny 80 and 90 degree weather this will bring us to july part way maybe all the way through the month of july and we find at the beginning of this book this idea of identity who am i and now that search the search for who am i is one of those things that we can rightly say is a modern obsession If you were to go back a couple generations, if you were able to ask your grandpa or your great-grandpa or his father before that, and you were to say, hey, have you ever thought about who you are? Most of them would laugh at you and say, I had too much time spent trying to survive than to figure out who I am. And it's truly staggering how much we obsess about this today, how much it is preached to our children, as the stacks of bodies that have been just destroyed by it are lay there for everyone to see. There is no shortage today of grifters and con men promising you the key to your happiness and finding, finding out more about what you care the most about, which is you. You can find out more about you. There is no shortage of tests you can take. You can pay for a slight fee and you can take this test and you can find all these categories about who you are and those categories are always put in the best light possible you don't like people that much well that's just because you know you're just you care more about yourself or or whatever it is there's no shortage of of tiktoks or self-help videos and books that are nearly endless in this category and the the reason for that is there is no shortage of demand for them the search for our truest and most most authentic self really does occupy a lot of our time and a lot of people have found a way to laugh all the way to the bank as they help us on that search consider for a moment how odd that question really is who am i i heard this statement in a children's cartoon once that my kids were watching the character who was a dog of all things (laughs) said i just don't know who i am anymore and i sat there going what an odd question to ask. You hear it all the time, but when you start to think about it, what a really odd question is that? I need to find out who I really am. What does that even mean? In the most basic sense, what does that even mean? 
I remember Ardell, uh, it was either a sermon he preached for me or was in Sunday school. He had said something like this. His parents would say to him, you're a candidate, act like one. Your identity, in many ways, hear me on this, is 100% outside of your control. And there are things you will learn about yourself as you grow up. There are things that will become strengths and weaknesses that you will come to know. And you will come to know them not primarily by looking within, but in living your life among other people. But much of your identity, as much as it grinds against our postmodern attitudes, is 100% outside of your control. Don't hear me saying that you can't get better at things, or you can't learn things, or you can't grow and work hard. Of course you can, and you should. But we have become a truly narcissistic people who are taught that narcissism is good. We spend so much time worrying about who we are, thinking deeply about ourselves, digging deeper into ourselves, that we make ourselves the center of our lives. And the Bible operates on a completely different assumption, is that you don't need to be encouraged to think more about you. You need to be encouraged to think less about you and more about other people. And this is the the stress we deal with today. Because you see, without God, meaning dies. Because meaning now has to be made by you. Which means, when you make meaning for yourself, that when you die, that meaning goes with you. It also dies. Which means it didn't really mean anything in the first place. So we set off on this wild goose chase of finding out who we are. And the only reference points you have for finding out who you are is you. Now think about that. You are to find out yourself by measuring yourself by yourself, but you don't really know who yourself is yet. You wonder why your kids are so confused. You wonder why this society is absolutely becoming insane. You're like, Levi, why are you so worked up about this? Well, I got to relax for a couple of weeks. <laughs> and I've got to deal with this sitting in counseling rooms, dealing with lives that are falling apart, dealing with marriages that following apart both as a pastor and in my personal life, not my marriage, but out, outside of my role as a pastor, friends and family. This, this worship of the self in so many different ways is the greatest social contagion we have. It is literally killing people. It is literally destroying homes. And people can always couch it in such a word as that they have become so selfish and self-centered, but they have now become somehow the hero as they destroy other people and they've become the victim. That doesn't mean there's not real victims out there. But brothers and sisters, if you open your eyes to see this, you will start seeing it everywhere. You'll start seeing it in your own heart. Because it's the very air we breathe. It's a hopeless and dizzying search. We are told that Salvation will come through this. That once you find your truest self, then you will finally be able to love yourself and live the good life you deserve. And if somebody gets in the way of you finding your truest and most most authentic self, they need to be done away with. They need to be called all types of terrible terms. Just forget your marriage vows. This person won't. I'm not becoming the best me. It's not about you. Uh We'll get to this in the next sermon series. There are some quotes I read this week of supposedly Christian ministries promoting this stuff among discontent people. And you read what they, what they say about this and how this is going to lead you to your best life. And I just want to grab these people and slap them in the face. 
I literally read something, paraphrase of this, that anything that doesn't um, affirm your emotions is emotionally abusive. Really? So when my toddler throws a tantrum on the floor, I have to affirm him or her in that tantrum or am I emotionally abusive? Did you ever stop to think for just one second that you are full of yourself and you're leading other people to death? You shouldn't send me on vacation. (laughs) (laughs) Salvation is not offered by looking further within. If all of this makes you want to vomit, you have to get in line because I'm going to go vomit first. Three things I want you to consider. By every measure, every measure, if you read the sociological studies, we've never been more self-obsessed than we have been today. And along with that, we've never been more depressed. We've had, never had more deaths of despair. We've never been so anxious because we think so much about ourselves. We've never been so drugged up. And we've never had so much despair yet being so materially blessed. Your lives are easy compared to the prior generations. Absolutely easy. Oh no, somebody doesn't like something you said on social media. Get over it. Why can we not deal with life how it is? Perhaps the cure we've been being offered again and again is actually killing us. Second, as I've already said, you cannot kill God and meaning without also killing man. No God means no ultimate meaning. It means you actually have no meaning. And that's the little thing we, we don't like to admit. Third, modern life tells us that you must learn to love yourself first, but the Bible asserts you already love yourself. And thus, actually, if you want to have a good life, not a problem-free life, but you must learn to love others. You must learn to not see your truest self first, but to die to yourself first and affirm other people and serve other people. It's not about you. Man, we better be thankful that Jesus didn't have this. You know, you guys aren't affirming my most authentic self. I'm just not going to go to the cross. Like, pick up your cross and follow after Christ. You can't hold both of these together. And again, this doesn't mean as our kids grow up that we don't want them to find out more about what their strengths and their weaknesses are. But it's not primarily about looking inward. You're not enough. You need someone more. So if man is to mean anything, we have to come to see ourselves in light of God. As limited creatures, we must see ourselves in light of the infinite God. And that's exactly where Peter starts us in his apostle or his epistle. Of course, the Christian doctrine of identity begins with this. Every single person of every single demographic is made in the image of God. You want to know who you are? You have to see yourself in light of God. And it starts with this. You bear his likeness. Unlike anything else in creation, whether we're talking about animals, rocks, or even angels, you are unique. Angels do not bear the image of God. You do. You are of a higher order, even of angels. You will rule over angels in the new creation. Because you bear the image of God, and they do not. Every human has that equal standing. But Peter turns and he focuses on the unique identity of Christians in this age. Who are those who are Christians? What makes us different? And the first is this term. We are the elect. We are the elect. What does that mean? Well, if I haven't already said enough controversial things, the doctrine of election always brings with it controversy. What does it mean 
to be the elect. In the most basic sense, elect means that you are chosen. You are God's chosen people. Paul is writing to the church who are the elect exiles of the dispersion. That dispersion term is used for the Jewish people scattered among the nations. We saw it prophesied in the book of Micah that God said he was going to disperse his people among the nations and through that he was going to convert the nations and they would come in faith and they would fall to Christ or to God through Christ. But here Peter tells us that the church, and listen carefully, when I say the church here, I am not excluding Jews. The church made up of believing Jews and Gentiles are the elect exiles of the dispersion. That means you. You are the elect exiles. You are the fulfillment of the prophecies in Micah. And so, we are the elect. Psalm 106, Israel is called God's chosen ones. The elect. Deuteronomy 4, 37. And God says this, And because he loved your fathers, he chose their offspring after them, brought them out of Egypt with his own presence and by his own power. To be elect is to be the ones God has chosen. This is primarily an act of God, not an act of man. So why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Did God look in and see my truest and most authentic self and say, yeah, I'm going to pick that guy? No. Deuteronomy 7, again, he says this to Israel. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. God did not choose Israel because Israel was so great. He did not choose them because they were mighty. There was nothing unique or special about them. So why did God choose Israel? He chose them because of who he is. It is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It is because the Lord is abounding in love and faithfulness. So what about us? Why did God choose us? Ephesians 1, we read about the foreknowledge of God, that before the foundation of the world, he chose us. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, you know this passage well, explains it more. Who were we? And you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So what was it about us that made God choose us? Children of wrath, dead in our sins and trespasses. There was nothing unique about you or about me 
that God would choose us. But by grace you have been saved. It is a free gift that you might see the immeasurable riches of His glory and His grace. And through that, He has now seated you with Christ in heaven upon the throne of God. Because you are one in Christ. And He did all of this because He is rich in mercy and He has loved us with a great love. So let me state it plainly. Salvation is far more about the character of God than about you and who you are. In salvation, in our election, in our choosing, we are in God choosing us, we see the abounding mercy of God and we see His great and surpassing love. If my salvation was at all based on who I was before Christ, I would not be saved. And that gets under our skin because we desperately want to say, I've, I've contributed something. There's something about me. We scream out, we see this, we say, it's not fair. It's not fair. Fairness would be all of us going to hell. It is emphatically not fair. It is mercy. But God is rich in His mercy and His love, and therefore He saves us. The second identifier we are given, so you've got elect exiles. What does that mean? <laughs> We're elect exiles. That's another term that can be very easily distorted. Christians all the time say of this world, this is not my home. And what they generally mean by this is that heaven is my home and the, the earth is not. Brothers and sisters, that's not a biblical way of thinking. This created order is our home. This earth is where God, He created the earth, He placed man on the earth. Now heaven dwelt with earth at that time in the, in the Garden of Eden. Heaven and earth have been rent apart by our sin. But if we mean by this earth is not my home, that heaven in a non-physical existence is our home, then we are out of step with the Bible. Because we read that heaven will again descend upon earth and God will dwell with man in a physical creation again. That is this earth. Remade and renewed. To put it another way, the disembodied state where the soul is ripped from the body through death is a temporary state. Paul calls it an unnatural state. This is not how God has made man to be. That is not our final destination. At the resurrection, everything will be brought back together again. And what does Paul mean by that we are exiles? It means that in one sense, this world isn't our kingdom. It's not our kingdom. It's not where our allegiance lies. And again, that has nothing to do with the physicality of the world, but it is about the fact that this world is in rebellion against God. That there are kingdoms and lifestyles of this world that are actively opposed to God, and that is not my kingdom. I now belong to the kingdom of light instead of the kingdom of darkness. Mankind in his rebellion still lives in the world that God created and that God upholds. And our exile is more about us being kicked out of the garden than it is about being physical or not. And so we are exiles awaiting the coming of the kingdom, praying that Christ's kingdom would indeed come again to this world. For this world is Christ's and, in another sense, is not yet Christ's. I think a good way to think about this is to think about the Civil War 
Now that I'm not in the South anymore, I can, I can talk about the Civil War. The rebellious states of the South declared themselves to be free. They said, we're, we're not a part of America anymore. And the northern states said, yeah, you are. And they went and they, and they took them back. In a very similar way, this world has said, we don't belong to Christ anymore. We don't belong to you, God, anymore. This world is ours. And God sent Christ to say, yeah, you are. This is my world. The battle's not yet over. But this world is being retaken by the king of kings. To be in exile is to live in this world knowing that this world is our inheritance through Christ. That this world is our home and that we will have it when God dwells with man again in the new creation. That kingdom is not yet here fully. So we await it. We pray for it. We labor that it may come. Because this world still has a sworn allegiance to our rival, the illegitimate king, Satan. To be in exile is to be a herald of the return of the true king. That this is his world, and we belong to his kingdom. And so that is who we are. We are elect exiles. We belong to God by virtue of his power, his love, and his mercy. And we live in a rebellious world, awaiting the retaking of that world by our king. We are Christ through election, awaiting the fullness of the kingdom. The question then becomes, how did this happen? How does God do this? Look at the first part of verse 2. It says, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. If we're going to talk about election, we have to talk about foreknowledge. We have to talk about foreordination, or the uh, more ugly term that gets people's Spines going. Predestination. Here's the not-so-dirty little secret. Any and every Bible-believing Christian has to believe in some form of predestination. Why? It's not just the Calvinists. Why? Because the Bible uses the word. He predestined us. God foreknew us. He predestined and ordained us to be His people. And He did this, we read again and again, before the creation of the world. God decided this is how it's going to be. And so, if we want to affirm the accuracy and the inerrancy of Scripture, then we have to affirm predestination. Ephesians 1.5 says this, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Okay? That's Ephesians 1.5. That's not John Calvin. That's not Pastor Levi. That's the Holy Spirit. In love, He predestined us. So what, is that, what does that mean? This is where the controversy, I think, really begins. What does it mean that man has been predestined? Does that make man a robot or a puppet? Do you make no choices whatsoever? Nobody who affirms the Bible could say that either. In some way, we have to affirm, as the Bible does, that God predestines everything, and yet you have moral responsibility and you make choices. How the two precisely fit together, we're not entirely sure. The Bible reveals certain things to us and it leaves other things a mystery. And if you study theology at all, you know that for centuries, gallons upon gallons of ink have been spilled fighting over what exactly this means and how exactly this works, and we can't really come to any agreement. But we have to affirm these two things. 
that God is sovereign over absolutely everything. And you make choices. And you are fully responsible for those choices. And we have to recognize along with that that God is not an insect that you can examine or dissect to figure out all of his parts. He is higher than we are. So when it comes to making sense out of predestination, there are two basic camps that are faithful, orthodox camps within evangelicalism. The first is the aforementioned boogeyman, Calvinists. They assert that God foreordains or predestines some to be his through election and that this is wholly based upon his character. By his divine prerogative, he gives grace and mercy where he wishes. He is the potter and we are the clay. The other camp would be Arminians. They say God does predestine. If you think Arminians don't believe in predestination, they do. But they say God predestines some based on his foreknowledge of who will choose him. That is, God looked into the future before he created anything. God looked into the future and he saw that one day Levi would choose him. So based upon that knowledge of Levi will one day choose him, he has now then chosen me. As you can see, that places man's choice as primary over God's choice. If you've been around Christ Bible Church any amount of time, you know which of the two camps I'm in. If you don't, or if you haven't been, you're about to find out. The, the problems with the Arminian position are twofold. First is this. It makes salvation based on human works. If the difference between me being saved and my neighbor not being saved is that God looked into the future and saw my works were better than his, then it is based on works. The grounds of my salvation is primarily something I did that my neighbor did not do. This undermines, in my opinion, the gospel of grace. Second, and this, this will tie in with some other camps that call themselves Calvinists but are just really confused people. I, I had one of them as a professor once and I tried to engage him on this. I'm like, I don't think you understand what Calvinists actually believe. Um, second, if God could create any universe he wanted, and he can and if God, before he created anything, looked at all the possibilities of all the universes he could have created, and he chose, I'm going to create this one, where Levi believes and my neighbor doesn't, do I actually have the free will to choose anything different when that time comes? No. And God chose the one universe that we actually exists. It doesn't actually do anything to protect humans' free will. God saw I would believe, and so when that time comes, the only thing I could do is believe. This is the dirty little secret. You cannot fully protect human free will and have a God who is sovereign. And so we have some Arminians who are just really confused Calvinists, or they're just closet Pelagians. If you don't know what that term means, that's fine. It's a heresy that was rejected by the church centuries ago. And you have another option that is snuck in, called open theism that says God doesn't know the future. Because if you really want to protect the priority of human free will and salvation, God can't know the future. Because if he does, you can't choose otherwise when the time comes. And that is to abandon the faith. The Bible places this emphasis on God's sovereign grace. He chooses from before the foundation of the world based upon his grace and his character, not ours. And you still make choices. 
and are accountable for the choices you make. Long story short, we were from eternity past chosen by God based on his goodness and not ours. Therefore, therefore, brothers and sisters, you should be humble. You should be grateful. You should praise God for his saving power. Peter also places a focus here on God saving in our lives, not just in monotheistic terms, but by pointing to the Trinity. Phil did a good job of designing our worship today. We sang a lot of songs this morning invoking the Trinity. Listen to these words. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. See that formula all throughout the New Testament. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Christ commands us to baptize people in the singular name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul, throughout his letters, uses the same formulation again and again. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here Paul, or Peter uses it as well. This is the Father's plan from eternity past to save us by His great love executed by the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are saved by the blood of Christ into obedience to Christ and by the sanctification of the Holy Spirit. All three persons of the Trinity are absolutely essential for your salvation. No Spirit, you're not saved. No Son, you're not saved. No Father, you are not saved. And like predestination, like all these other things, the Trinity is a very confusing doctrine. I remember sitting in theology class and we'd start talking about the Trinity and I would feel like my brain would slowly turn to mush as we try to understand it. There are things we can say about it, there are things we shouldn't say about it, but we can't fully comprehend it. And yet the Trinity, as intimidating as it is to understand, one God in three persons, is absolutely essential to the Christian faith. If you want to see one thing that marks off Christianity from every other religion, and every other worldview, it is this, the Trinity. You cannot have the Christian faith without the Trinity. We can't make sense of our salvation. We can't make sense of the world as we know it. The Trinity is absolutely essential to Christianity and makes it far better than all of its rivals. There are three persons in one God. All are truly God, and yet all are distinct. And we depend on each of the three for our salvation. No Trinity, no Christianity. So we've seen now our God-assigned identity as elect exiles, how that reality is all of grace, that the Father and the Son and the Spirit work in concert to do these things. So what is the result for us as elect exiles? First is this. Peter says, grace. He wishes grace and peace to you. Peter ends the opening of his letter by praying for grace to multiply in our lives. The grace that saves you is the grace that sustains you throughout your walk. You and I need grace every single day. If you want to put off sin, if you want to grow in patience, if you want to be a better husband, you want to be a better wife, you want to be a better parent, you want to be a better child, a better employee, a better Christian, a better citizen, God has grace for that. And that grace never runs out. And all the change and growth that comes in your life as a Christian comes by grace alone. 
We are saved by grace and we are dependent upon it every day. Second, Peter prays for peace. This peace here is not the absence of conflict. It is a peace that comes between us and God and therefore us and creation. This peace manifests itself in many ways. That God's people can remain calm in the midst of persecution. Steadfast in the midst of opposition. When all else is crumbling, we can have a peace that surpasses human understanding. Why? Because it's not human. It comes from God. God has come to set things right. Third, God elects us. He chooses us by His grace. But this does not mean that He makes no demands upon you. We are called to sanctification. That's a fancy word for saying you are called to grow in holiness. You are called to grow in good works. This is the work of the Spirit in our lives. That we are to be sanctified by the Spirit and to grow in obedience to Christ. You are not saved by works, but you cannot be saved and then go about doing no works. You have been bought by a price, the blood of God the Son. And now you are His and you are called to live differently. Yes, you are chosen by grace. Yes, your justification, that is being called righteous, has nothing to do with you. Your sanctification does. It has a lot to do with you. This free gift of salvation is paradoxically very costly for you. God says you can come and be saved for free, but oh yeah, you're going to die to yourself. You must leave behind that old self, put it to death with extreme prejudice, and live in the newness of life secured for us. Gone, praise the Lord, is the old Levi. And here in his place is someone, not perfect, but being transformed to degree by degree into the image of his Savior. Gone is the old you, put to death with Christ on the cross. And standing in that place is the new you being transformed degree by degree to the image of your Savior. We must never pit justification and sanctification against one another. We must never pit faith and obedience against one another. As soon as we mention obedience or good works, people are quick to start shouting accusations of works-based salvation. But the Bible is 100% clear on this as well. Faith without works is dead. It cannot save you. That's not real faith. We have been saved by grace that no one may boast into Ephesians 10, or 2.10, right after 8 and 9, you've been saved by grace. You've been saved into the good works prepared for you from beforehand. Just as God has ordained your salvation, he has ordained good works for you. We are called to walk in that great grace. And we do so precisely because the plan of the Father, the blood of the Son, and the indwelling of the Spirit. So brothers and sisters, you are elect exiles by the foreknowledge and predestination of God. You are a new creation by the grace of God, the blood of Christ, and the power of the Spirit. You are called to live like this is true because it is by the Spirit. In the work of Christ, God has provided everything you need not only to be saved, but to grow. I want to make one one final application. 
Contrary to making us robots, doctrine of God being sovereign over absolutely everything, it is meant to be an encouragement to you. That you get to go forward from this place in boldness, in confidence. God reigns over everything. He has called and chosen you. Not just you, but you for right now. He has placed you in this time, in this place, in this location, by His infinite wisdom and knowledge and plan. He has called you for now. And He has prepared from beforehand the good works for you now in this season of life and world history. That means this God who makes no mistakes isn't wrong. What he has prepared for you, you look around the world and you're like, this is going nuts. Everything's going to, we're going to lose. No, God has appointed you for this time, for this reason, for this season. And he's not wrong. Go with confidence. Go with boldness. Look to Christ, trust God's sovereignty, and live in that confidence. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are sovereign over everything. We thank you that by the plan of the Father, by the blood of the Son, and by the power of the Spirit, you have saved us and are saving us. May we grow day by day into the image of our Savior. May by the power of the Spirit, we put off the old man and put on the new. Guide our steps each day, O Lord. Amen.